Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, August 12th, 2023. My name is Veronica C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York, and I will be your host for today's study. And Tanya L. and Tanya G., I'm sorry, and Sue L. are co-hosting. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function, and the chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the Q&A session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answers session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition, and this money will go toward the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we'll also send contributions to our intergroup and world service organization. We will put a link in the previous week's recordings that are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Hi, Harlan. Hi, thank you very much, Veronica. I'm so glad to be here. I'm not in Arizona right now sweating my uh, sweating my butt off. I am actually about two seconds from Poop Park, and I am staying in a penthouse that peruses Poop Park, and from our perch above Poop Park, we can gauge the traffic at Poop Park, so which is always exciting for me. And Chicago, Chicagoland area, is absolutely paradise today. It is, I'll tell you in a second, it is exactly 82 degrees, high of 86, low of 68, and it is 30 degrees cooler, not 30, but 20, 25 degrees cooler here than it is in Scottsdale, Arizona today. So I am just thrilled to be here for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is uh, my friend who is here. So now we have, oh, by the way, yes. And uh, what was I also going to tell you guys? Oh, I, I don't think there was anything else. Yes. Okay. Uh, I got to get my brain. Uh, I got to get my brain in order here. We have been in the chapter two wives and the chapter two wives, the chapter, the family afterward and the chapter to the employer are very, very much extensions of step 12. Remember that step 12 is a three-part step. The first part of step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Well, that we achieve when we work the steps. Number two, we have uh, the... Um, the uh, chapter to wives and then to the family afterward, because it says we tried to carry this message and chapter seven teaches us how to carry the message. Well, what is the last part of, chapter, uh, of step 12? The last part of step 12 is to practice these principles in all of our affairs. What are our affairs to wives or that significant person in our life? The family afterward, 
moving out of the nucleus a little bit and then to the, empl the employer so we have our jobs. And these are the affairs that we find ourselves dealing with. Now, when we get started here, we're going to start on page 118 from the paragraph, another feeling we are likely. That's the last paragraph on page 118. And it begins with another feeling we are likely. Now, if you're not careful, you can be taken in by the words that we read in this chapter that teach us how to handle the anger of another person or the drinking of another person and the situation with other people. But what we need to remember is very solidly laden within the context of this chapter is to make sure that you keep your eye on the ball. What do I mean by keep your eye on the ball? In baseball, in football, you have to keep your eye on the ball. What is the ball? Your own recovery. If you keep your eye on the ball and you keep yourself focused on your recovery, you will never, ever go wrong because it is inherent in each of us to hold up that magnifying glass rather than the mirror. And I must work the mirror harder than I work the magnifying glass. What do I mean by that? I have to constantly keep looking inside me. Where do I need to change? Where do I need to do inventory? What resentments am I holding? What fears am I holding? Because if I'm not in recovery, I have nothing to give another person. When I'm not in recovery, I am intolerant. When I am not in recovery, I am on edge all the time. When I'm not in recovery, I love holding on to resentments. I love holding on to all these various things. Why do I love to do that? The reason that I love to do that is because it keeps me defocused from myself. And the less I can focus on me, and the more I can focus on you, the better I like it. Because it's recreational to focus on you, but it takes work, it takes guts, it takes courage to focus on me. And I don't want to do that work. It's easier for me to run around thinking you're this or you're that or you're not this, or you're not that, rather than thinking, boy, I've got a lot of work to do. And what I need to remember is, boy, I've got a lot of work to do on me. That's my job, is to work on my inventory. And if you're sitting there today taking my inventory, that's great. This is good practice. At least it'll give you a running start into taking your own inventory, which is, which is often good. All right, we've been talking about the various husbands. If you remember, we had husband number one. He gets in trouble with drinking, but he can control it if he has to. Husband number two, he's a little worse. Husband number three, worse yet. And husband number four, boy, he's just out of control. Now, I am husband number four. I am a very low bottom 
compulsive overeater. And if you've been around me at the Scottsdale meetings, or if you've heard some of my special editions on a vision for you, you know very well from being around me that it is my belief through observation. Now, I am not able to point to a page and say, this is the page in the big book where it says this, because it doesn't say it in the big book. I cannot point to the 12 and 12 and say, here's where it says it. What I'm about to give you, I invite you to ignore because this is just my opinion. And here's my opinion. I believe that addiction is a spectrum disorder. What does that mean? A spectrum disorder. I believe that we are affected identically in other words, every one of us that is a compulsive overreader has the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. Every single one of us that is a compulsive overreader has these factors. If you don't have these factors, you're not a compulsive overreader. But here's what I believe since we're talking about husband number one, two, three, and four. I do not believe that we are affected equally. In other words, some of us are affected to a greater degree than others. That's what I believe. And so it is a spectrum disorder. There is a wide spectrum of affect. What does a spectrum of affect mean? It means that some of us will get to be 300 pounds. Some of us will get to be 400 pounds, 500 pounds. And some of us will never, ever see those weights, whether we come and do this program or we don't. And on the other side of the coin, anorexia, bulimia, some of us will purge every single day, several times a day. Some of us will purge every day, but not more than once or twice. Some of us will be 80 pounds, seven, whatever that may be. So we are affected identically, but we are not affected equally. There is a wide spectrum of affect. Now, when we're dealing with other people, we have to understand that we are affected identically, but we are not affected equally. Does that mean you sponsor differently? No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But what it means is, is we have that observation. And what we need to remember is this, turning it in on ourselves. I must outwork my level of effect. Of effect. What does that mean? I have to outwork my level of effect. I have to work a bit harder than the level to which I have been affected. And when we read this chapter to wives, it is very easy to focus on the other person. The challenge is I have to do my own work. I have to make sure I'm not harboring resentment. I'm not harboring fear. I'm not doing these things, the selfishness, the dishonesty, the resentment, the fear. Those are the things, self-seeking. I need to remember that I have to outwork my level of effect. Very, very important for me to keep that in mind. Let's go to page 118. And on page 118, at the bottom of the page, we see this. 
It says, another feeling we are likely to entertain is one of resentment that love and loyalty could not cure our husbands of alcoholism. We're going to stop right there for just a second. I'm going to talk about the most wonderful Alanonic person I know. And her, I didn't know her, but her name was Lois. And Lois had a husband named Bill. And Lois's husband started drinking heavily in 1917. And he drank just about every day of his life with some rare exceptions during 1933. He was hospitalized in April of 33, didn't pick up liquor again for a year until April of 34. And then his moral, uh, his, his drinking took off like a ski jump. But let's take a look at Lois. And what Lois was very upset about was this. Lois did not understand how Ebby Thatcher, a drunk, she knew Ebby Thatcher when Ebby was in the stroller. When he, when I was a kid, they didn't call them strollers so much. They called them baby buggies. And Lois was a little girl and their family, the Burnhams, they had a summer home in, in Manchester, Vermont. And the, the Thatchers, Ebby is a Thatcher, they had a home in Manchester, Vermont. And when Lois was a little girl, she would babysit. And Ebby had older siblings and she would babysit and she would see Ebby in the baby buggy. And here's this guy, Ebby, uh, and she, would, she knew that he was a drunk. He was an absolute fall down drunk. How is it that after everything that I did, after everything that I did for Bill, Ebby is able to knock the liquor out of his hands and I could not. How is this possible that with everything I've done, and remember, Lois was trying every day of her life to get her husband to stop drinking. She did everything humanly possible to get this guy to stop drinking. And along comes Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby is able to accomplish something that she was unable to accomplish. Now, she wasn't that much older than Ebby. I don't want, I don't want to mislead you. She was only like three or four years older than Bill or Ebby. But when she was four years old, she remembers the Thatchers and Ebby was a baby. She's also three or four years older than Bill Wilson. And that was one of the reasons that her father, Dr. Burnham, was not crazy about this marriage. That's just reason number like 71 and a reason of like 10,000. But uh, Lois's dad did not like Bill at all. He was a drunk. He was you know, constantly pushing stock on him. He just didn't like Bill Wilson. Okay, so uh, this sentence, another feeling we are likely to entertain is one of resentment that love and loyalty could not cure our husbands of alcoholism. Because what we see constantly is you people that are on this meeting right now can help me with my compulsive overeating. But my mother, who tried every day of my life, my dad, who tried every day of his life to help me, my best friends could not budge the food out of my hand. And so for them, it is just mystifying, my mom and dad included, it was mystifying 
Of course, my mom and dad never saw me in recovery, but it would be mystifying. I assume they'd be happy about it that someone else other than them could finally get me to stop eating. It would probably be a very big surprise to them. And I know my friends, they really don't get it. Uh, I do have a friend that is a compulsive overeater that's untreated. And I, but the rest of my friends are not addicted and they just don't really understand any of this. But what they do question at times is why these people that you don't know, why were they able to communicate with you? Why were they able to help you where we could not? And that is something that they just don't really understand. All right, let's continue. We're at the bottom of page 118. We do not like the thought that the contents of a book or the work of another alcoholic has accomplished in a few weeks that for which we have struggled for years. At such moments, we forget that alcoholism is an illness over which we could not possibly have any power. Your husband will be the first to say it was your devotion and care which brought him to the point where he could have a spiritual experience. Now, let's take a look at something again. What does Dr. Silkworth tell us? He tells us that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. What does that mean, depth and weight? Well, when we look at depth and weight, here's what we're looking at. Now, the first part, the depth, anybody can get that. If I go to a doctor today, if I, I'm, I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois, if I go to a doctor in Arlington Heights, Illinois, and I say, talk to me, doctor, about obesity, talk to me about the effects of obesity on the body, they could probably give you two hours of all kinds of different scenarios from liver failure, high blood pressure, of course, diabetes and edema and loss of hair and, and loss of self-esteem. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but here's what that doctor will not have unless not only is that doctor one of us, but that doctor is one of us in terms of recovery as well. They will not know how to speak to you one-on-one -on -one about recovery. Doctors have been telling me from the time I was four years old, three years old, you're never going to have a good life. You're going to die. You're going to this. You're going to that. You know, all these various things that are going to happen to you as the result of being fat. I found out that they were 100% correct. There's probably not one thing that those doctors said to me, other than that I would die before I was 30. There's not one single fact that those doctors told me that I could honestly tell you was incorrect. Not one. But here's what it takes to speak the language of the heart. It takes Depth and weight. How do you get the depth and the weight? You get the depth and the weight by suffering from this disease rather than just learning about it in a book. And you get it by recovering. And that's why it is so vital that we sponsor. If you are not sponsoring, 
and you are you are in what you would call recovery, you are in trouble. I know that some of you are going to say in the questions and answer today, I'm afraid to sponsor. Well, I'm going to quote my friend in New Jersey, my friend Kim G in New Jersey. I'm going to quote her. She'd say, you're afraid to sponsor? You better be afraid not to sponsor. Because if you don't sponsor, you are not working a 12-step program. You're working something else. And if you're working something else, remember what it says about half measures availed us nothing? It said in the book, the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. So a lot of times people are afraid to sponsor because they're afraid of not being the perfect sponsor. Forget that. Nobody is the perfect sponsor except God. The only perfect sponsor there is, is God Almighty. And he is the sponsor when we go to that big meeting in the sky. But until God Almighty comes down here to sponsor you, you have to remember that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, when I am sponsoring someone, they also get input from other people. I get input from other people. I am constantly inundated with input from other people. And so as a person that has input from other people, it takes a village to raise a child. So to live in recovery means that you sponsor. And to live in recovery means that we use the book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as a textbook. What happened as soon as Bill Wilson got sober in December of 1934, what did he do immediately upon getting sober in December of 34? He said, I began talking to the people in the hospital. And they didn't want him doing that. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a licensed counselor. He wasn't a drug and alcohol abuse counselor. But he started talking to these guys in the hospital. And what did Silkworth notice? He noticed that Bill Wilson could get through to these men where he, Silkworth, could not. What did we see about Dr. Bob? When we read Dr. Bob's Nightmare and we read the story of Bill Dotson, Alcoholics Number Three, what do we see? We see Dr. Bob getting sober on June the 10th, 1935. Now, after two failed attempts to sponsor on June the 26th, 1935, 16 days after he got sober, he went and made a call with Bill Wilson on Bill Dotson. And by July the 4th, 1935, Bill Dotson left the hospital, a sober man, never to drink again. But Dr. Bob was sponsoring 16 days after getting sober. How many of you today that are listening to this, whether you're listening here on the, um, on the uh, Zoom meeting or you're listening on podcast, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, I can't see you anyway, how many of you are sponsoring 16 days after you got sober? How many of you today have sponsors that will take you through the steps quickly 
so that 16 days after you get sober, you can go out and make a phone, a 12-step a, a call on somebody else. I hope that's something to think about for you, because in OA today, I see too much detailed, in-depth sponsorship with writing assignments that are not in the big book. With all, Here are the steps that have writing assignments in them. Four, eight, and sometimes nine. That's it. Four, eight, and sometimes nine. No other step has anything like a writing assignment attached to it. And yet, and yet, I spoke to someone last Saturday or the Saturday before. They told me they were on step six for five months or six months. How is that possible? If step six takes longer than 20 seconds, I'm doing it incorrectly. If step seven takes longer than 30 seconds, I'm doing it incorrectly. So we are here and we have the rest of our lives to do an in-depth study on whatever step you want to do. But the key here is to get through the steps as quickly as possible because nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. So in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth, information, weight, experience. Experience isn't the best teacher. It's the only teacher. Pain isn't the best motivator. It's the only motivator. The only reason I'm alive today is because of the loneliness and the depravity that I and the shame and the guilt and the, the horrible nightmarish life that I had in the food. The only reason I'm alive today is because of the nightmare of life that I had at the hands of this disease. And I don't know where I could have been or what I could have done with my life, probably in a lot of ways better, but probably in most ways worse because I have a life today that is worth living. I have a life today that is enviable. I had a life, I have a life today that is full of wonderment and miracles every single day. And I am so happy to be alive and I don't hate myself anymore. I, I do go through times when I get angry or I do sometimes doubt myself at times. I'm human, but on the whole, I have a good relationship with God and I have a good relationship with myself. And what are, as we covered last week, what are the only two permanent relationships in the world? The only two permanent relationships are that with, your, with yourself and with God. Everything else is, is a merry-go-round. People come for a reason. They come for a season. Come, some come for 50 years, 60 years. Some come for three days, a minute, whatever that might be. But the two relationships that we will have, no matter who you are, no matter what you are, you could be married. You could have 1,000 children and 20,000 grandchildren. Doesn't matter. The two relationships you have that are permanent are the one with yourself and the one with God. Let's continue. We're at the top of page 119. 
without you, he would have gone to pieces long ago. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. And I would translate that, do step 10. Do step 10. After all, your family is reunited. Alcohol is no longer a problem. And you and your husband are working together toward an undreamed of future. I do not believe that in the food, I was ready for my marriage. I do not believe that in the food, I would be ready for a relationship with anyone, whether they're men, women, turtles, salamanders, would not matter. Now that I'm not in the food, I find myself intuitively navigating things that I could not have navigated with a map. Now, I'm not an expert on anything. Lord knows I'm not an expert on relationships or any or, or, or anything. And intimacy is still a challenge. And I have you know, all kinds of challenges within relationships. But my challenges would be insurmountable were I in the food. If I were in the food, I would just head for the hills. It would be me and the television set, and that would be the end of the story. Me, the television set, and tonight's Saturday night, so I would have my threesome. Me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. Once in a while, we would invite Ben and Jerry, or we can invite Colonel Sanders or Captain Crunch. But most of the time, it was just me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee, and that was my Saturday night. Okay. I'm in 119. Still another difficulty is that you may become jealous of the attention he bestows on other people, especially alcoholics. You have been starving for his companionship, yet he spends long hours helping other men and their families. You feel he should now be yours. The fact is that he should work with other people to maintain his own sobriety. Sometimes he will be so interested that he becomes really neglectful. Your house is filled with strangers. You may not like some of them. He gets stirred up about their problems, but not at all about yours. It will do little good if you point out and urge more attention for yourself. We find it a real mistake to dampen his enthusiasm for alcoholic work. You should join him in his efforts as much as you possibly can. We suggest that you direct some of your thought to the wives of his new alcoholic friends. They need the counsel and love of a woman who has gone through what you have. Um, I am in, currently in a relationship. I was married for 17 and a half years. And what I will say to you is my recovery is well supported in these relationships. Um, my recovery is the most important relationship I have. I have nothing to give anybody. I have nothing if I'm not in recovery. And this is what I know for me. This is what I know for me. Yes, I want this other person to love me? Absolutely. Do I? You bet I do. But if I take anything in my life, my business, my romantic interest, my friends, and I put them above my recovery, I will find that for me, that doesn't work. If I put everything else second behind God, then everything else in my life is first rate, first rate. 
So anything I put before God, I'm going to lose it. Does, I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm explaining it correctly. Anything I put behind God. So in my life, it's God, my significant relationship, me, friends, business, but God has to lead the procession. Because if God doesn't lead the procession and I'm in the food, then I have nothing to give. I'm not, I'm not really hearing what you're saying. I'm you're talking to me and it sort of looks like I'm there, but I'm thinking about Oreo cookies. I'm thinking about an m M&M. I'm thinking about an Oreo. I'm thinking about Captain Crunch. I used to take a box of Captain Crunch and, you know, just polish it off. I can't hear what you're saying. I don't have, truthfully speaking, I don't really have an interest in what you're saying too. And that's part of it. I really don't give a damn what you're talking to me about. You want to talk to me about God knows what? I have no interest. You want to talk to me about we're going to go to a pizza parlor? You want to talk to me about going to whatever? Now you got my attention. Now you got my attention. I'm going to a place for lunch when this is over. And obviously I can't go to Peter Jungle because I'm, you know, I'm 2,500 miles from Peter Jungle. But I'm going to go to a place for lunch today where I'm going to get a very simple thing, very, very simple thing. And I'm going to get some club soda and I'm going to be way better off. So the point I'm trying to make is the temptation is to put the business first. The temptation is to put someone else, my romantic interests first. The temptation is to put my friends first so that they'll like me and they won't abandon me. And that goes for the romantic situation as well as the friends. I don't want to be abandoned. No one does. No one really does. What I found is when I did that and I put another person first or something first, it just doesn't work for me. It never has worked for me. It probably never will work for me. It just doesn't. So with God first and everything else behind it, second, third, fourth, whatever, everything else in my life is first rate. I hope that makes sense. Okay, let's go to the bottom of 119. It is probably true that you and your husband have been living too much alone. For drinking many times isolates the life, the wife, excuse me, of an alcoholic. Drinking isolates the alcoholic as well. Now, alcoholism has a little bit of a different start than compulsive overeating. When I was about three years old, four years old, maybe, I got my hands on some candy. I got my hands on some cupcakes, I believe. And I went into a closet in my home and I was eating these cupcakes. And my mom burst open the door and I started crying. Even as a child, I was ashamed of what I was eating, how I was eating it, and my desire to have all the food myself. I knew there was something wrong with what I was doing. And that was a thought that really, really resonated within me. With drinking, there is less of that at first. They drink together. They go to bars. They do, hey, I'm buying the next round. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. 
But in the life of most alcoholics, not all, but most alcoholics, what eventually happens is they start drinking alone. They don't drink in the groups like they used to. They start drinking completely alone. So for them, it is not as social a thing at the end as it was in the beginning. But this is a disease of isolation. So even in a crowd, even in a crowd, it can be very difficult for certain people to break through with that isolation. Very difficult. I've very rarely seen it done. Therefore, you probably need fresh interest and a great cause to live for as much as as you need a fresh interest and a great cause to live for as much as your husband. If you cooperate rather than complain, you will find his excess enthusiasm will tone down. Both you, both of you will awaken to a new sense of responsibility on page 120, top of 120, you as well as your husband ought to think of what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out. Inevitably, your lives will be fuller for doing so. You will lose the old life to find a much better one. Now, that is a heck of a paragraph because what I need to do is look how many times does it tell me in this book to put others first? to go serve others. And when I do that, I will have a life far beyond my wildest imagination. Give rather than get, love rather than be loved, understand rather than be understood. If that sounds like the St. Francis prayer, that's because that's where I'm pulling it from is the St. Francis prayer, uh, the, the, the prayer of St. Francis uh, that I recite all the time. Okay, perhaps your husband. Sorry, perhaps your husband will make a fair start on the new basis, but just as things are going beautifully, he dismays you by coming home drunk. If you are satisfied he really wants to get over drinking, you need not be alarmed. Though it is infinitely better that he may have no relapse at all, as has been true with many of our men, it is by no means a bad thing in, in some cases. Your husband will see at once that he must redouble his spiritual activities if he expects to survive. And this is something that I'm not going to go encourage you to get to go binge. I'm not going to encourage you to go eat food that's not on your food plan. But one of the side benefits, if it does happen, and for most of us, it already has happened, is this. It really wakes us up if we're smart. It'll wake us up to the fact what I'm doing is not enough. I have to do more and different. And you've heard me say this a million times. You want different? you got to do different. You want the same, you do the same. You want different, you better do different. You need not remind him of his spiritual deficiency. He will know of it. Cheer him up and ask him how you can be still more helpful. So help other people. Get out of yourself. This is a theme. Remember, we come from the Oxford group. 
What was the Oxford group? The Oxford group were people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. However, if you read in their history, Buckman goes to China. He goes on a mission in China. He sees these women and men all truistic in their, in their Christianity, and they have a belief, they have an enthusiasm. There's two Greek words, entheos from God, enthusiasm, two Greek words for God that his people just did not seem to have. And what was giving it to him? This idea of altruism. Very, very important. Give rather than get. Love rather than be loved. Understand rather than be understood. Again, this is from the St. Francis prayer. Very, very important. The slightest sign of fear or intolerance may lessen your husband's chance of recovery. In a weak moment, he may take your dislike of his high-stepping friends as one of those insanely trivial excuses to drink. We never, never try to arrange a man's life so as to shield him from temptation. This is the third or fourth time that that's in the book. That's why people will text me and email me and call me. Why do you have to say Chips Ahoy? Why do you have to say pizza? Why do you have to say Oreo cookies? If I say Oreo cookies and you go out and eat Oreo cookies, that's not on me. You knew there was Oreo cookies before you ever tuned into one of my podcasts. Before you ever tuned into this Zoom meeting, you knew about Captain Crunch. You knew about Kit Kat bars and Almond Joys, and you knew all the things. But if I'm going to try to shield, you know, the frozen stuff that comes in the box, why don't you just say ice cream? Who are you kidding? Or the stuff you cut in triangles, and it's in a circle, but you cut it in triangles and put it in a square box. Why the hell don't you just say pizza? For the love of God, that's ridiculous. Just come on, let's let's be adults here. If I say pizza and you go out and eat pizza, you were going to anyway. You were going to anyway. We never, ever try to arrange a man's life so as to shield him from temptation. The slightest disposition on your part to guide his appointments or his affairs so he will not be tempted will be noticed. Make him feel absolutely free to come and go as he likes. This is important. If he gets drunk, don't blame yourself. God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out right away. Then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. We realize that we have been giving you much direction and advice. We, we may have sent it or seem, excuse me, to lecture. If that is so, we are sorry, for we ourselves don't always care for people who lecture us. But what we have related, what we have related is based on experience. Some of it painful. Painful is not the best teacher. It's the only teacher. We had to learn these things the hard way. That is why we are anxious that you understand and that you avoid these unnecessary difficulties. So to you out there who may soon be with us, we say good luck. And God bless you. Now, the little asterisk par paragraph here, it says, the fellowship of Al-Anon family groups was formed about 13 years after this chapter was written. Though it is entirely separate from Alcoholics Anonymous, it uses the general principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. 
you hear people get on there, the principle of this is honesty and the principle of that is whatever. They, they didn't know from that. That's stuff that came out in the 80s and the 90s. The principles to them and me are the steps of the AA program as a guide for husbands, wives, relatives, friends, and others close to alcoholics. The foregoing pages, although addressed only to wives, indicate the problems such people may face. <clears throat> Alateen for teenage children of alcoholics is a part of Al-Anon. If there is no Al-Anon listing in your local phone book, you may obtain further information on Al-Anon Alateen family groups by writing to its World Service Office, 1600 Corporate Landing Parkway, Virginia Beach, Virginia. So let's summarize this chapter. And then next week, we're going to begin the chapter, the family afterward. Now, these are chapters that are normally skipped in other arenas. But what I'm going to do the best I can is to bring things out of these chapters that will be things that will enhance your program and enhance your paradigm, enhance your perspective, on not only the recovery or lack thereof of others, but it will help you to look inside yourself and improve your own recovery because you will be so motivated to do more work. And that's what my aim here is, is to encourage you to look inside yourself while we, while we look at other people, yes, but the more intense version, the more intense thing is to look inside ourselves. That is where the recovery is. So to just sort of summarize the two wives chapter, we have a situation on our hands where we are involved with someone who is addicted. But never mind the fact that we are addicted ourselves. We're involved either through blood or through affection with someone who is addicted. And what we're challenged to do is not to steer them and guide them and try to control them. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. Don't eat here. Don't go there. That's not going to work. To, to browbeat them, to, to try to control them, that's not going to work. Remember, at the very core, we are immature, perfectionistic, sensitive. What's the last one? Rebels. Addicts do not like being told what to do. You start to tell an addict what to do. They are going to rear back on you. You are going to hear some things you probably don't want to hear. Or they will give you lip service. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're just going to do what they want to do anyway. How do I know that? How do I know that for sure? Because that was me. That was definitely me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, okay. That's how I weathered the storm my whole life. Okay, yeah, I won't eat this or I won't eat that. The fastest way to get me to go eat whatever, uh, Sara Lee brownies by the tin, the fastest way for you to get me to do that is to tell me not to. You start telling me not to do that, I'm going to wait you out. I'm going to wait you out. Eventually, you're going to leave. You're going to go. You have something to do. You're going to leave me. You can't stay with me. You're not part of my skin. You're not part of my part of my body or mind. Eventually, you're going to go your own way. And when you do, I am going to go eat more Sara Lee brownies. I'm going to go eat more whatever, Gino's East Pizza, than you could possibly imagine. So that we are immature, 
sensitive, perfectionistic rebels. So the less you tell an alcoholic what to do or a compulsive reader, how do I communicate? By using I words. I found this. I found that. I relate my experience. When I start telling an alcoholic what to do, I am in trouble. A, it's not going to happen. B, I'm putting a rift between me and that other person. Me and that other person are now further apart. Um, so that's something to watch out for. This week, I told someone else what to do, and I felt bad about it. And I even reiterated it yesterday in the evening. It took me a long time to get here. My flight was delayed six flipping hours in Phoenix. I thought I was going to go absolutely crazy. And I, I had a real resentment yesterday. I fly more than an average person. I don't fly as much as some. I fly more than most. But I have been in Chicago, uh, I would say, February, March, April, June, July, August. I've been here six times this year. And I have taken three or four flights last year. And in the flights I've taken last year and this year, I have zero flights, zero flights, zero, that either were not delayed or outright canceled. And yesterday, we were delayed six flipping hours. I thought I was going to, I thought that I was going to be on the news. <laughs> I was going to just flip the frick out. I didn't know. I was beside myself. So I had to do step 10. Then I had to do another step. 10. I was not a happy camper at all. But anyway, the reason I'm relating that is this. Um, we want to use I sentences, just like it says in the big book. We want to live in the declarative rather than in the imperative. What's the imperative? You do this, you say this, you do that, you go here, you go there. That's imperative. Imperial king, imperial, Im imperative. You're telling people what to do. The declarative is, I did this. I found this. That works a lot better. Does anything work 100% of the time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I could put handcuffs on somebody or chain them to a fence and they won't compulsively overeat. But the minute I unchain them, they're going to do that. I remember in Chicago, there were two treatment centers. One was called Parkside and one was called Raider Institute. And I spoke on a Sunday night at the Raider Institute at Bethesda Hospital in Chicago. Bethesda Hospital in Chicago is on Howard and Western. It's condos now. It's not, there's no Raider. There's not even a hospital there. It's condos. It's on Howard and Western. And I remember I was going in my car and there was a guy there and I won't say his name. He had been in there for 30 days. And in those days, I'm going back now 30 years ago, 30 years ago, it was $20,000 for the month at the Raider Institute. He walked out of Raider Institute. I was going to my car and I watched him go to Amy Joy Donuts. 
I watched him walk into Amy Joy Donuts. I don't even think Amy Joy Donuts exists anymore, but there was one on Milwaukee Avenue and there was one on Western and Howard. And then Dunkin' Donuts came in and Winchell's came in and Yum Yum came in and then Entenmann's and then what's the other one, uh, the big one? Uh, I don't remember the name, but it doesn't matter. But I, what is it? No, Duncan was the, the big one, but there was another one. Oh, uh, Krispy Kreme. But Amy Joy, I watched him walk from the treatment center into Amy Joy Donuts, and I was flabbergasted, flabbergasted. And you know what? It's The reason I was flabbergasted wasn't because I was surprised he did it. I was flabbergasted because I thought I was the only one that would do that that I was the only one who thought that way and who acted that way. And it was surprising to me that there was someone else who was as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as me. That was the surprise. Not that he did it, but that I wasn't the only one. So I could chain you to a treatment center. I could do whatever I need to do to, no, I could do whatever I need to do to chain you to this door over here. The minute I unchain you, you're going to go and do what you need, what you want to do. Is it, I hope that makes sense. Okay. What we're going to do today, because we're done with the chapter, next Saturday, I'll be back in the sauna of Scottsdale. No, it won't be that bad for much longer. We only have another... Uh, till we have till about September 10th to the 15th, and then it starts to starts to become more tolerable. But um, okay, we're going to start the chapter next week to the family or the family afterwards. What I'd like to do is I'd like to open it up five minutes early for questions and answers. But but before you throw it open, I want to talk to you for just a second. First thing I want to do is pitch the birthday, January 12th, 13th, and 14th. It's Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday weekend. This is a game-changing convention. It's a game-changing convention, not because I'm doing big book this year, but it's a game-changing. See, my ego comes out again, see? But it's a game-changing convention because of the sober eating workshop. It's a game-changing convention because of the speakers. It's a game changer because on Saturday, there's a luncheon with a speaker. On Saturday night, there's a dinner with a speaker. On Sunday, there is a closing speaker. There are get-togethers for vision. There's get-togethers for the Scottsdale group. There's sponsor-sponsee meetups. There are socialization. There's a dance on Saturday night. There's just all, and this is a very safe crowd. I know how scared we can get of people because some of us have a lot of social anxiety. We have, we've been battered around because, you know, we're compulsible readers. This is a really safe crowd. This is the safest crowd I could imagine. Come to the birthday, support the birthday. It's very, very important. Again, get in a day or two early. You won't be sad you did that. And don't leave early Sunday. Stay for the closing ceremony. This, the convention ends at noon on Saturday. If you leave early Sunday, you'll miss the sober eating workshop. You'll miss the end of, of the big book study. And the big book study this year is going to be just great. You're not going to want to miss that. But the bottom line is, is that 
Um, we're going to have a good time and it's going to be a great convention. Okay, before I turn it back to whoever, no.